0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's podcast, we're talking again about Greek mythology, about a woman from Greek mythology. We're talking all about Pandora, the first human woman, according to the Greek myths. But what do these stories tell us about Pandora? What's this whole story behind the box? And why should we not think that there was a box, but instead that there was a jar? Well, to explain all, I was delighted to get back on the podcast, the esteemed author, classicist, Comedian, broadcaster, Natalie Haynes. Natalie was on the podcast a few months back to talk all about Helen of Troy. Here she is again to explain all about Pandora and the story of Pandora's jar. So, without further ado, to explain all about Pandora, here's Natalie. Natalie, great to have you on the podcast.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: Now, Pandora. We've all heard Pandora. We've all heard of Pandora's box.
1: I'm vexed by this, but yeah.
0: Exactly. But the story is actually a bit more complicated than that, isn't it?
1: It is, I'm afraid. So Pandora doesn't get a box until Erasmus. So 2000 years after the earliest versions of her story to survive to us, which are in Hesiod, In both he writes about her twice in the Theogony and the Works and Days. And in the shorter version, in the Theogony, probably the earlier version, he doesn't make any mention of her having any kind of receptacle at all, just describes her being created, which is by far and away the most important thing about her to the ancients. In every single visual representation of Pandora to survive to us today, she is shown in the act of being created rather than holding any kind of receptacle. Um, The important thing for the ancients is that she is the first woman before Pandora, no women, after Pandora, women. And that is her role. Men, you're descended from Eric Women, we're descended from Pandora. They're both chthonic. They're both made out of clay. And so we are literally, according to the Greek origin story, we're different races. We descend from these different characters. But that is her crucial role. And then in the longer version that Hesiod tells us in the Works and Days, In that, she appears, she's created on Olympus by Hephaestus at the behest of Zeus. She's sort of decorated and and added to by other gods and goddesses. Hermes, I think, gives her voice. Athene teaches her to weave the graces and the charities come and help her out, you know, decorate her dress and things like that. And then she's taken by Hermes to the house of a man named Epimetheus, brother of Prometheus, as his wife. And when she arrives there, she suddenly has the jar. There's been no mention of it before that point. So we have to assume that the jar has come from Olympus, that it's come from Zeus. And yet it's never attributed to Zeus. You know, It's clearly been delivered, as she has, by Hermes. He never gets mentioned either. And suddenly there she is in the house of Epimetheus with a jar. And in some versions of her story, for example, Hesiod's, she opens the jar and it's full of terrible things other versions of the story, the version told by Theognis in his elegies, the jar is full of nice things that she lets out into the world. In other versions of the story, for example one version told by Aesop of Fables fame, it's Epimetheus who opens the fricking jar and yet somehow it's always Pandora's fault and it's always a box and she always does it deliberately and it's always full of terrible things, all of which are let out into the world and therefore everything is ruined. And it's like, wow, we are determined to make a pretty woman responsible for everything that's gone wrong. And of course, what happens is that her story gets sort of mapped onto the Eve narrative, which is a much more kind of clear cut case of somebody doing something they've been told not to, even though, you know, I think Eve could do with a bit of defending, truthfully. But, you know, uh, she does eat the thing that she's been told not to eat. And so, this idea that a woman is responsible for everything going wrong is so heavily stitched into. Christianity in particular, but obviously it's in what Professor Stavokopoulou would call the Hebrew Bible. So what Christians might call the Old Testament. So it's right there from the beginning in the book of Genesis. You know, a beautiful woman is responsible for everything being wrong. And that's what happens to Pandora. You know, instead of being the first woman who is you know, responsible for their being women, which I might add Hesiod is thoroughly against. You know, The carefree age of men was at an end, he says. Mm-hmm. Well, dude, you've now got fire and women. So good news, you've got hot dinner and someone to talk to over it. So I'm sure your carefree life is at an end. But on the other hand, at least you've got something interesting to say and more than just crudité. I can't imagine Hesiod ate crudité, but you see my point. And then Erasmus comes along, who isn't even a Christian, he's a humanist. And yet he is responsible for this incredible slur on Pandora's character, which makes her seem more like Eve than ever. He makes a mistake. He takes the word pithos, which means jar in Greek, and he translates it to the word pyxis, which means box in Latin. And it takes such a short space of time, literally just a few decades after he does this, you start seeing every single image of Pandora is now with a box every single one. It takes almost no time, it feels like, for it to go from being like a regular box to a strong box. So she's really having to make the effort to open it up. It's like there's a lot of malevolence in this woman. And you think, well, look at the jars in in any museum. And especially if you go somewhere like Greece or Italy or Sicily to see them where you get earthquakes, they're wired to the fricking wall because they're so fragile. You know, they're really narrow at the base. They're really fat at the top. You can see the cracks on them. Don't put the world's evils in there. It'll definitely break. Whereas a box, it's like a lovely safe box that you can keep things in and that you can't just knock over, you know, and if you did knock it over, it's square, it might stay shut anyway. And as I say, it becomes a strong box. It's strapped shut with leather straps and Pandora goes from being essentially unlucky or curious to being villainous. And it's just a mistake. And I should say that he has form, Erasmus has form for these sorts of mistranslations. And there's not, by any means, it's not usually a gendered issue. So for example, if we were describing somebody in contemporary English as being very blunt, we might say he or she likes to call a spade a spade. And that comes from Erasmus, except for the fact that the word scaffair doesn't mean spade, it means a hollowed out object like a canoe. So in fact, we should all say, ah, she likes to call a canoe a canoe, but we don't do that. And it's all because Erasmus spoiled it for everyone.
0: So Erasmus has got form on this, basically. He's got form on this,
1: yeah. So much for being a polymath, Erasmus. But yeah, obviously a very brilliant man and everybody's allowed to make a mistake. But in the instance of Pandora, it just has incredible ramifications that have lasted ever since.
0: Oh, absolutely. As we will delve into, let's unpack all of this now, then, Natalie. I mean, yes. if we go back to Hesiod and Theogonus and uh, Aesop there, But mm. it sounds like so. these ancient Greek stories, myths of Pandora, she's a gift from the gods almost, or she's part of a plan by the gods? She's
1: very them? much part of a plan by the gods. Absolutely. So Zeus is tricked on two counts by Prometheus. Prometheus, a titan, steals fire which the gods don't want men to have yet, or at least Zeus doesn't want men, and I use the word men advisedly because women don't exist yet, to have yet. And he also tricks Zeus in the mode of sacrifice that he gets. It's always seemed a bit strange, I think, that when the Greeks sacrifice to the gods, they sacrifice the sort of inedible bits, bones, fat, like offal. I'm vegetarian, so all of this sounds repulsive to me, but there we go. And then people get to eat like the nice bit, which is, I have no idea, actually, like muscle, I suppose. And it would sort of make more sense if the gods got the nice bit and mortals only ate the horrible bit. And so obviously looking for an explanation for this, the Greeks come up with the story of Prometheus, who gets a sacrificial animal and separates it into two bits, the sort of inedible pile and the nice pile. And then he puts a piece of glistening fat, according to Hesiod, which if anything makes it sound less appetising to me, but there you are, um, on top of the bad pile and... I don't know, something that looks even less appetizing than glistening fat on top of the good pile. And Zeus is very cross and says, that's not fair. And Prometheus says, well, you can choose which, which portion you'd prefer. And, you know, Zeus glances quickly and is greedy. And so he chooses the glistening fat, which turns out to be on top of the bones and the offal. And that's why the gods get that, that bit of an animal. And men get, get the other bit. And, he, and Zeus is so peeved by this trick and by the theft of fire that he creates a two pronged response. I mean, Prometheus gets like a one pronged response, I suppose, because he gets tied to a rock and his liver is pecked out by an eagle every day forever. So I suppose if you consider a beak to be a prong, just the one prong. But the revenge on people is twofold, perhaps. So it's the creation of Pandora, who is described by Hesiod as Aunt Agathoio in exchange for the good thing. And it's really tempting for people to read that as, therefore she is bad. But I'm sort of troubled by that as a mindset because fire isn't intrinsically good or bad, is it? Depends whether you're freezing cold or live in the path of a forest fire. It's both good and bad, depending on context. Fire itself is amoral. And so I tend to conclude that Pandora is also amoral, that she is a morally neutral agent, I suppose. The time when men could live carefree without fire or work or any of those things is coming to an end one way or another. And once fire is handed over, then things have to be different. So the plan of Zeus is, okay, then women, okay, then children. And it is the case, you know, that people undergo an enormous shift in what they can do once fire is discovered. It's a it's a good origin story to explain that. It's a good piece of myth-making. But I think people have found it very tempting over the years to sort of suggest that Pandora is a villain. Fire is unambiguously good and Pandora is unambiguously bad. But I think it's really hard, especially when you see, you know, the horrific forest fires that afflicted Greece last year. It's like, I'm not sure that makes sense in the context of of Greece. You know, in a cold, damp country like Britain, we're like, yeah, mmm, toasty fire, central heating, thanks very much. But it doesn't feel that way necessarily, I think, when when you're thinking about this story in its physical context.
0: Absolutely not. And especially, you mentioned Greece there, especially as we focus in on Athens in a moment Mm. and her depiction there. But one other thing quickly before we move on, the whole name Pandora, what does it actually mean?
1: Yeah, really good question, because routinely people will tell you it means the girl with all the gifts, which was indeed the title of a rather good zombie novel a few years ago. But it doesn't quite. That would be Pandosa, because that's passive. And Pandora actually means all giving, not to whom all is given. And Hesiod says, they called her Pandora because every god gave her a gift, but it is undeniably the case that the word is active and not passive. So she is all giving rather than just all given, although she is undeniably the latter. I don't know, it's always seemed rather sad to me that we sort of rob her of her generosity, Mm. of her agency. So I tend to think uh, that seems to me quite a strong argument in favour of seeing her as morally neutral. She gives everything, good things, bad things, and it makes her a bit more complicated than just this sort of again, pretty destructive lady. It's like, oh, give me a break. i I give you on this,
0: this good things, bad things, if we focus in on the jar a bit more, these mm. origin origin stories, the one other thing which caught my eye when reading about it was this thing that doesn't leave the jar. Right, right Elpis. the boss Yes, yeah. yeah, so so all this is confusing, I think.
1: Yeah, it is actually. I think that's absolutely right. So the one kind of constant in Pandora's story when it's told by writers As I say when she's depicted by ancient visual artists, she's never shown with a jar or any other thing. But when writers write about it and they give her a jar, sometimes the jar has good things, sometimes the jar has bad things, sometimes she opens it, sometimes her husband opens it, sometimes it's by mistake, sometimes it's deliberate. But the one thing which is consistent across all these versions is that a single object is retained in the jar and that object or personification sometimes is elpis it's hope or expectation people usually translate it as hope but the greek elpis doesn't mean anything quite as positive as hope you're not necessarily expecting a good thing to happen you're just expecting a thing to happen expectation right i mean in greek and i think it's true in latin actually when somebody says what's new they mean what new bad thing has happened (laughs) which of course doesn't ever come into anyone's mind when they're watching the news today but yeah elpis hope or expectation is always retained in the jar And even that has been used as a stick to beat Pandora because of course you can see that as a positive or negative thing, irrespective of whether the jar had good or bad things in it. So if the jar is full of bad things and all of them are released into the world, it's a good thing that expectation, Elpis, is still in the jar because all these terrible things are out in the world, but at least we've still got hope. We've got expectation kind of kept safe for us in the jar, held under the lip of the jar, Hesiod tells us. And you go, oh, that's great. But in some versions of the story, you can read it that she's hoarding hope so that we can't have it. It's like all these terrible things are out in the world and we don't even have hope because Pandora's kept it for herself. And of course, if you make the jar full of nice things, you can do the exact same argument in reverse. There are nice things in the world, but we can't really enjoy any of them because we have no expectation of them because she's still got it, and so on and so on. And so I think there's a really interesting point to be made that even a very linguistically simple thing with no mistakes involved can still be spun as a negative against Pandora, and routinely is. But there's no real reason why it should be. If you translate expectation, Elpis, to mean hope, and then it's kept secret in the jar, again, she becomes a villain. It's like, how did that happen? <laughs> she didn't do anything. But there you go.
0: Absolutely. And if we untangle that further, then, if we talk about ancient Greeks in their how they viewed Pandora. I mean, Natalie, it feels like the jar actually doesn't really play any part in this story at all. In what's, the visual form yeah, that's what, true. What's the yeah. importance of Pandora for ancient Greeks?
1: She's the first woman. Without her, there aren't women, and uh, though Hesiod would disagree with me, the world is worse without women in it. Hesiod would simply rather there were more bees. I'm not <laughs> going to lie to you. He's very much against women and pro-bee. And I suppose if you really like honey. I can see how you might feel that way.
0: He, he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't like women. He doesn't like his brother doesn't or something like women. Like I, it's impossible on, not yeah. to suspect
1: that his brother eloped with his wife, <laughs> yeah. as far as I can tell. It's like the whole time I'm reading, I'm like, dude, who hurt you? <laughs> it's like, I can never get past it. Like, Why are you It wasn't a bee, was it? You like bees. So yeah, no, there is more than an element of that. But yeah, it's absolutely right. For the ancients, you know, there was a depiction we don't have anymore, but we do have an ancient description of it of Pandora at eye height, in the most sacred part of the Acropolis. The hugely important thing about Pandora, in terms of her visual representation, is that before her there aren't women and after her there are women, so there she is in the act of being created and that means everything changes. You know, This is the will of Zeus being embodied, he specifically says he wants Pandora to be created. Now of course you can see that as a a punishment for the theft of fire. But it makes more sense, I think, to see that at some point, surely Zeus was going to hand over fire to mortal men. It's just Prometheus sneaks in and does it a bit early. He doesn't particularly want a society of people who can't worship him properly because they can't burn sacrifices. So at some point, he's going to hand over fire. And Pandora comes alongside that. This is the embodiment of the will of Zeus. Change happens. And so. I don't know. I always, if I'm feeling generous, I always tend to assume that the male writers who get so angry about Pandora and indeed the male artists in later time who show her in deliberately conniving kind of way, I think, yeah, we all fear change. You know, Mm. it is difficult, isn't Mm. it? It's hard.
0: And so how do ancient Greek artists, let's say, on the vessels, how do they depict Pandora
1: there? So she's usually shown kind of coming out of the ground because she's sculpted from clay. And so it does look a bit aggro, I'm not going to lie. Hephaestus and sometimes other characters as well are trying to release her from the ground. And you do that with a sort of mallet, you, you loosen clay with a sort of mallet. So it does look a bit like that bit in Heathers, where they're all kind of gunning for her with croquet hooks, but it's, it's not a violent scene, they're trying to create her, they're trying to free her from the earth. There's a lost Sophocles play called The Hammerers, it's a satyr play, so a sort of bawdy comic play. So the satyrs are trying to perhaps to release Pandora from the ground because it sounds like they have hammers. That's what they're called.
0: Sophocles is just this name that seems to always come up. His lost plays, these fragments of lost plays, he just comes up and up. You know, whether it's Helen of Troy, Sappho, Pandora. He seems to have one for all all of these. He's got one for all
1: occasions. He was incredibly prolific. He wrote between 100 and 150 plays. We've got seven, you know. He wrote plays over well over 50. You know, he would have written three tragedies and a satyr play for the Dionysia presumably once a year for what 40 years something like that so yeah he was 84 i think when he died so he was incredibly prolific but he also had a long life how
0: can toilet training cows help save the planet should we start renting our clothes and why on earth is beds from the happy mondays now keeping bees i'm jimmy doherty tv presenter farmer and conservationist And these are just a few of the questions we'll be answering on my new podcast on Jimmy's Farm from History Hit. Join me on the farm to hear from the likes of the founder of The Eden Project, Sir Tim Smith, Professor Dieter Helm on how to stop climate change, and my old friend, Jamie Oliver. Listen to On Jimmy's Farm now, wherever you get your podcasts. So, for the longest time, like following the time of ancient Greece, we've got ancient Rome, early medieval period, it's always the story of Pandora. It's centered around, you know, she's the first woman in Greek myths Mm. and she has this jar that's always been there. So if it's been that way for millennia, by the time we get to Erasmus, which you mentioned earlier, Mm. why just this one mistranslation of one word, why does that stick, the box rather than the jar? After you know millennia of people telling the story that Pandora, she's the first woman, she has a jar, but now she's got a box.
1: Yeah, I'm afraid I think it taps into a sort of really deep-seated misogyny which becomes incredibly prevalent as Christianity spreads, which is that the fall of man is something that a woman is responsible for. I bow to virtually no one, I think, in my love for Greek myth, but sometimes we just get beaten. And uh, it is true a couple of times with Bible stories that they just totally override the Greek myth version. I think even classicists, if you ask them who survived the Great Flood, would be more likely to say Noah than Deucalion, who is the great Greek myth survivor of a huge flood. And I think that's what happens with Pandora. She gets just lost behind Eve, you know, in this notion that a woman is responsible for everything going wrong. It's so prevalent. So I think, you know, there are images of Pandora from the relatively modern world, i.e. not ancient Greece, that predate that Erasmus translation where she is shown with a jar. And there are even a few after him where she's shown with a jar, but very, very few. And even they are determined to, to make her evil, I'm afraid. There's a fantastic painting <laughs> from before Erasmus. Is it, by, is it by Jean Cousin? I can't remember now. And she's naked because, oh my god, the one thing which is 100% in Hesiod is that she's got a beautiful dress and she likes it. Even he, who's furious about women and prefers bees, is briefly charmed by the fact that Pandora likes her new frock. And yet she is over and over again shown in paintings naked. It's like, of course she is, because otherwise, how would we live? And so there's this version of her where she is naked except for a sheet, which is sort of draped tactfully between her legs. And then she's got one hand on her jar and the other hand on a human skull. It's like, oh, okay. well, this is nice and hot. Oh, no, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> becomes unwholesome really no, absolutely, quickly Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there's just a huge temptation to make her a villain. She's a beautiful woman, so she must be evil. So, the archetypal femme fatale. But actually, as I've argued before, she should be it's like a better French phrase for her is jolly led. She's good, bad. In Hesiod, she is calon, cacon. She is a good, bad thing, a fine, unfine thing. You know, they're specifically chosen antonyms. And, you know, we just forget the kalon bit. Or what happens when it gets translated into English over and over again is that the positive quality kalon becomes visual and the negative quality kakon becomes moral. So she becomes a beautiful evil. You're like, well, that was very clever, wasn't it? But that's not what, I, this is basically my T-shirt. I'm afraid that's just not in the Greek. But, you know, in the Greek, they are equal terms. So if you're going to make one of them visual, you should say, jolielette. she is beautiful, ugly. She's good, bad.
0: I appreciate we kind of did jump over the Romans and all of that, but do we know at all how the Romans portrayed, perceived Pandora? Was she important at all to the Romans? I don't think
1: she's anywhere near as important. And there's a really interesting question in there of why that is. And I don't have an answer for you. I wonder if it's the case that the Romans are much more interested in a more martial and nurturing idea of womanhood, you know, for them, For the Romans, women's sort of idealised role is to produce sons who will be able to fight for Rome. It is a really ugly, quite fascistic mindset. That's why they were so popular with fascists of the 20th century. And I wonder if the role of a first woman is simply not required to them in the way that women have been so sublimated into motherhood by the Romans. That I wonder if that's what goes wrong.
0: Which is such a contrast, isn't it, to Athens, as you mentioned earlier, mm. you know, with the Parthenon, the statue of Athena. Yeah. And so you can kind of, I guess you can understand therefore why Pandora becomes so closely associated with Athens, can we say, or with the Athenians? Yeah, the I Athenians think that's value right. her highly. Yeah, yeah,
1: I know, I do think that's right. She is a really important part of that narrative and their story that I mean, I suppose that's what myth is, isn't it? It's the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, at least in part. And Pandora is very much part of the Athenian city state. Image of itself. Absolutely. When you put a visual representation of a character at the centre of your most sacred space, you are saying something about them, and that is that you value them.
0: Well, let's Keep going on then post Erasmus to a few examples we have of this new well, maybe not new, but this portrayal of Pandora with the box and this, yep. you know, link with the Christian world and Eve and all of that. Mm. Now there are a few paintings which seem to come to mind straight away. Rossetti's painting. What is this? This is
1: it's
0: quite something for the Pandora story.
1: It is really something. So the model is Jane Morris, wife of William Morris, with whom Rossetti was having a pretty full-on affair. It's just extraordinary. She's holding this sort of jeweled casket in her hands and Rossetti made the box, that this version of Pandora's box, and it was sold, I think, with the painting until about the 1950s and then somewhere along the line they were separated or it's been lost anyway as, as far as I know. And so she's holding this casket and it's beautiful. But it's really small, and it—you know—it's definitely the case that as the box gets smaller, its contents become somehow more desirable. You know, you're desperate to know what's in a small box, not in a big box. In a big box, it's like a crate. That's probably going to be work. There'll probably be a manifest. I'll have to unpack it. But a small box is something thrilling. And so she's holding this small box, and it's just, just a jar, and there's a tiny kind of plume of smoke orange smoke coming out of one corner literally impossible not to look at it and not go that doesn't look good and the thought of their social circle seeing this painting unveiled and presumably William Morris being there with his wife and everybody looking at him and looking at her I mean like dude <laughs> she's totally banging that guy. <laughs> so I find it genuinely compelling. But yeah, it is a it is a really arresting image of her. And, you know, we're obviously meant to see her as being, well, if not evil, then certainly able to help out if evil is shorthanded, let's say.
0: And I guess moving on from that, which is quite interesting, how can we say that whole storyline, that portrayal, it influences like, children's books, you know, Greek myths for children's books from yeah, like, really the 19th does. and 20th centuries.
1: It's a source of great irritation to me that Greek myths have been so carefully edited for children because it almost never serves the myth well. And honestly, I'm not even sure it serves children well. And so you get the version, the Tanglewood Tales, the Nathaniel Hawthorne, and in the UK we had the Puffin, Roger Lancelin Green version, and they are so simplified I understand it. I get why you don't want to tell the story of, you know, Theseus being a serial rapist. But it means that if you're not careful, you just tell the story of Theseus being a a lovely brave hero. And it's like, well, he's only a hero if you're not, as Phaedra is, or as Ariadne is, the half sister of the Minotaur. And yes, Ariadne helps him, but it's still her half-brother and Phaedra doesn't help at all. <laughs> and so we're like, oh great, Theseus overcame the monster. And you know, well, it's only great if you're Theseus. And honestly, he's a lot more monstrous than the the Minotaur as far as I'm concerned. So Pandora doesn't come out of that well either, I'm afraid. So when these stories get simplified for children, then she absolutely gets, I mean, they're writing in a Christian, a much more Christian time than we are now. And she does just get mapped onto onto Eve very carefully. So she's sort of greedy or curious or pettish and demanding. And as oh, here we go. I, the version in Nathaniel Hawthorne makes Hesiod look like Emmeline Pankhurst. It's just outrageous, frankly.
0: But. And those works in turn it's almost like a domino effect they can influence well I'm sure they have influenced you know TV and media over the past Absolutely. half century I so. really
1: I honestly believe this and it sounds really trivial but I really don't think it is that one of the biggest problems that we have in trying to undo this sort of really insidious boring misogyny is that people think the version they encountered as a child is the right version. And why wouldn't they? You're a child. At that point, you're supposed to think that, you know, books are always true and that your parents know everything or teachers or whoever is your authority figure. You you know, a a secure child is going to have that experience. It's a terrible shock when you realize that your parents don't know the answers and, you know, have just been making it up this whole time. And so I understand why we want the security of a, a kind of nice, clean, tidy, neat version but there aren't you know that's not how myths work and so i think there is a, a resistance to accepting the huge plurality of these stories which were after all the ancient greece as we you know shorthandedly call it is 2000 years of history it's as far as we are from julius caesar and it's a huge geographical expanse you know at its biggest point under alexander the greek emperor. it's enormous and so It's like, well, of course these stories are emanating across the Greek world. There are, at the time of Homer, for example, there are rhapsodes composing poets like him working across the Greek world. So of course there are going to be different versions of these stories. And of course they're going to contradict each other. Why wouldn't you, if you were a rhapsode playing in Tiryns as opposed to in Thebes, include some Tiryns material? This is your local audience. You want to impress them. And so what you get is... There's these contradictory versions of these stories, which is why you end up with a version of Helen that goes to Troy and a version that goes to Egypt. And and why wouldn't you? You know, people want the kind of local colour, obviously, or or the stories wouldn't shift so quickly, but they do. And so, I don't know, it always seems to me so sad that we want there to be a sort of proper version of a myth. And it's like the proper way to read a myth surely is to be aware that there are all these different versions kind of bubbling up at the same time. What's more exciting than that?
0: So I said it before we started the recording as someone who certainly has had his mind completely blown by it. But I'm guessing so many people have come up to you like in the past years or so and said, I had no idea that there was no box at all and that it was actually <laughs> a jar. I mean, surely, right? It's yeah. It's what we think.
1: Yeah, no, it's true. Lots and lots of people are really pleasingly surprised by it, which was great news for me because obviously, you know, I wanted them to be surprised by it as a book and it just is... of those stories where people are like, wait, what? No, I (laughs) know. Wait, what are you telling? Really? And so, you know, there are loads of things about Pandora, which are interesting, I think. And only one of them is that she doesn't have the thing for which she's most famous. So yeah, it's going to be an uphill struggle, I think, to change language so that people say Pandora's jar instead of Pandora's box. But I find I routinely now get it wrong. If I'm trying to say the thing that most people say, I say jar by mistake, because I'm so used to saying it. So yeah, maybe I can create a sort of grassroots campaign to get her jar reinstated.
0: We did a podcast not too long ago where we ended up talking about how if the Romans were around today and they saw how they were being portrayed, thanks largely to the rise of Christianity mm. in the West as you know these sex-mad, decadent, orgy-loving Romans at dinner parties and all that, they'd be absolutely shocked because yes. this later a later thing that's been added to their story by the Christian world. Do you think it would be a similar thing with ancient Greeks, if any Greeks were around today, in how we portray, how we perceive Pandora.
1: Yeah, I would really think so. It's always tricky as a classicist, I think, because it means your version. Like, I'm surprised when you say that about the Romans. I think, oh, does, is that what everyone thinks about the Romans? Is that ri- really? Is that what you're all saying? <laughs> because I'm much more likely, I suppose, to be encountering them in whatever it is I'm supposed to be reading and haven't yet done for work, rather than, I don't know, in a movie or something. So, yes, I'm certain that the Greeks would be absolutely baffled because to them, she's half our origin story. You know, why don't we all have Pandora necklaces instead of St. Christopher's? You know, why aren't women celebrating that that if you go to somewhere like Cyprus, you're really likely to find jewelry that there's a beautiful representational, very simple knife, I suppose we would say, version of the great goddess who's the sort of precursor to Aphrodite. And it's like, well, where's that? for pandora why don't we have a, a beautiful symbol of her to mean the first woman i would love that i'm prepared to wear that jewel just fyi
0: well there we go for all the jewelers listening in finally for the ancients there we go it's going Here to it happen is. Natalie. uh Natalie, this has been brilliant
1: thanks for having me
0: last but certainly not least once again your book on pandora and so yes. many other women in greek myths and more is called
1: pandora's jar women in the greek myth and there will be a sequel but i haven't got a title for it yet
0: TBC. Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Anytime. Well, there you go. There was the author, classicist, broadcaster and comedian Natalie Haynes, the awesome Natalie Haynes, explaining all about Pandora. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll certainly be doing more topics around Greek myths in the near future. I can guarantee you that our producer Elena, she's working hard on topics surrounding Greek mythology. So stay tuned for more things, Greek myths on the ancients in the near future. Now, in the meantime, last but certainly not least, if you'd like more Ancients content in the meantime, well, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter via a link in the description below. I write a little blurb for that newsletter every week. And if you'd also be kind enough to leave us a lovely rating on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from, I always greatly appreciate it as we continue to spread the Ancients' love further and further afield. But that's all from me, and I'll see you in the next episode.